This morning I want to focus on what might be the most important topic possible. <laughs> Hope that's not a setup for a letdown. <laughs> it's a build up. Okay, so, which is, well, it may not be what you're expecting. <laughs> But it's the, it's the theme that we have looked at from time to time of how we make this practice real in the flow of our daily lives. So very related to our two reflections, question that we had earlier. Uh, for most of us, we may meditate may meditate daily. It may be a source of relaxation or even some peace or understanding. But it's very, very clear that what really determines the extent to which wisdom, compassion, clarity, understanding, responsiveness develop in our lives is essentially what we do the rest of the time. You know, we can be wonderfully peaceful for half an hour a day, and if that's not connected with the rest of our lives, it can be rather limited. And so, I think this is also especially almost like the uh, great question of our times, where so many of us are motivated to deepen in those qualities, and yet we don't exactly have the same support structure that we might have had if we were living a thousand, fifteen hundred years ago and were drawn to be in a monastery. We somehow have to find ways to have our daily life practice be continuous with our practice in the midst of work, family, State of the Union addresses, Challenges, distractions, electronic media, Twitter, you know, all of this. And how do we cultivate these qualities? I think it's the big, it's, a, it's, it's, it's in a way, it's also, I think, the big question that really faces everyone who comes to Spirit Rock. We focus on retreats primarily, right? and the retreats can be wonderful, but what happens after the retreat? You know, and so we have different ways of supporting it, but somehow... I don't know that we've had the kind of mature or thorough response to this question. Maybe it will be there in 20 years or in 50 years. But for me, it's it's a huge question that I think all of us are facing. Because I think we we do have uh, aspirations to deepen in this way. I think we probably wouldn't be here otherwise. And to be able to mature in these qualities and have that be the basis for how one is in the world and to respond to the needs of the world uh, as it manifests uh, near and far. So how to do that? That's the question. That's the question I want to explore today and next time and to give some suggestions of what I, I have found useful. But first I want to do a reflection. I want to invite everyone to do a reflection. So if you can go inward in your own way. Some it, for some it might involve closing the eyes, but you don't have to. Just to reflect, if you had to name what helps you the most to have your practice manifest in daily life, what would it be? And just to reflect quietly for yourself.
And I'll invite us, maybe one at a time, if you could name what you found helpful just in a word or two, just in uh, two, three words, you know, it could be like daily practice or something like that. You can still name that. So what, but, but not just so we can have a lot of people able to respond, just in a few, word or two or three. What would you say? What, what came to you, please? The concept of impermanence. Okay. The concept of impermanence really helps. Please. Wednesday mornings. Here. Wednesday mornings, community. Yeah. New, new understandings. New understandings, new themes. Okay, please. <clears throat> Remembering always to, to go back to my breath all mm. the time. Yeah, to continually come back to one's breath in the flow of daily life. Yeah, please. Same with me, coming back to the breath with an open heart. Yeah. Continually coming back to the breath with an open heart in the flow of daily life. Yes. Please. Being able to slow down and not have a, a tons of stuff to do. Being able to slow down, not having too much to do. So something about the very way one structures one's life, right? Others, please. Yeah. Uh, time out, which is following. Yeah. Having, yeah, having, having uh, time to be mindful, carving out time to take time out. Okay, please. Um, the teachings in general. Yeah, generally the teachings. Please. Just being in the now. Yeah, being, coming back to the present, reminding oneself of the now. Yeah. Maybe a few others, please. Yeah. The resource of Dharma Seed uh, website where all the Wednesday talks are available. Maybe uh, two more, uh, Barbara, and then in the back. Yeah, please. Um, a, a physical um, response, like I do Tai Chi, Qigong, dancing, mm-hmm. music. Physical way, uh, way, embodied ways, let's say, to be present, to be mindful, to be aware. Maybe in last one, Barbara? One is daily practice, and the other is pulling myself back in many moments during the day, on and off. Mm-hmm. Is what really mm-hmm. having just a moment to mm-hmm. pull back. So daily practice, daily formal practice, and then just having continual moments where you come back, come back to the present. Day. Yeah. Okay. That wasn't completely comprehensive. But it's a good start. <laughs> and so that's, this is what I want to explore. Um, and maybe just, uh, I'll just remind us of some of the, um, some of the challenges uh, of, of the situation. You know, I, I, I was uh, reading that the, uh, just the, the, the speed of the culture and the demands, you know, and the onslaught, really, of information. Uh, you know, maybe younger people have it even more, more intensely than we do. The, um, the average uh, teenager sends 2,200 text messages a month. The average visit to a website lasts 10 seconds. People... You know, so we could say a lot about the electronic media. The, um, you know, before the internet, the Thai teacher Buddha Dasa said Western civilization, when they asked of it, he said it's lost in thought. His sense was that we are lost in thought. And there's a conditioning that we have to work with that's quite strong for many, not all of us, but that we have very strong and active minds, which have, of course, their benefits. And... Uh, not not simply a problem, but when we meditate, we can see that those active minds don't permit certain of our don't make it harder sometimes to develop certain qualities in meditation. Something definitely we have to work with. So we have the the challenges of our conditioning, and this this is really not particularly new. The the Buddha when he was teaching. He said that to do this practice of cultivating mindfulness and compassion and wisdom, he says that it goes against the stream. 
he used that phrase, that to be interested in these qualities goes against the stream in the sense that it goes against the prevailing conditioning. This, this is what Stephen Batchelor said of that, of that statement. This teaching was said by the Buddha to go against the stream. The unflinching light of mindful awareness reveals the extent to which we are tossed along in the stream of past conditioning and habit. The moment we decide to stop and look at what is going on, like a swimmer suddenly changing course to swim upstream instead of downstream, we find ourselves battered by powerful currents we had never even suspected, because precisely because until that moment we were largely living at their command. And so it's, you know, it's the various kinds of conditioning, some of it quite specific in terms of the culture, very, 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 very strong. And even if we are practicing a lot, uh, it's, it's challenging. You know, we can have beautiful meditation, we can have beautiful retreats, and there's still challenges. There are people who can spend five or ten years in a monastery and have challenges. I remember talking to one person who was a monk for ten years. He came out of the monastery very developed in certain ways, and then he got married. (laughs) He said, I was not prepared. (laughs) And there were a lot of challenges that came up, right? There were challenges uh, that uh, the practice had to be expanded, we might say. So, and there, there, are, there are these tremendous challenges. So, so how, do we, how do we keep developing? How do we have this focus, given the challenge of our, of our personal conditioning, the cultural conditioning, and I think the fact that we're at a, in some ways, at a relatively early phase of really understanding how to make this real in daily life practice. That's, that's my sense. We have a lot of tools, a lot of resources, but my sense is that there are a lot of horizons that can really support our practice much more fully that we may have in 50 years. I mean, uh, assuming that we take care of a few other large systemic issues, <laughs> which will not be named, <laughs> which, which you know. We have, to, we have to take care of large systemic issues or we won't be or the conversation will be rather more basic. Um, So I wanted to really talk uh, about, I think, today, three areas, and then next week talk about some further areas that I have found particularly valuable. And I was thinking of this because for myself, I've had more of a kind of almost like an ardency or an energy or an urgency of a sense of having the practice be alive in daily life. You know, sometimes, um, sometimes that we can be sparked like that. You know, it's really a question of what, what, you know, what sparks you. Sometimes it's understanding impermanence and the fact that, you know, time is passing. What do I really want my life to be about? Sometimes it's suffering or loss. You know, that, that suffering and loss can have this power to make us ask what's really important in my life and sometimes can give us energy to, to have our deeper values be more alive in our lives. So whatever it is for us, we somehow need to find the energy and the support to bring our practice into daily life. It's also very much a community effort. I think it's uh, less really of a, I will personally do this all by myself. It's really more of a community process because a large part, as, as we heard from the uh, first reflections on what, may, what really helps daily life practice to come alive, a lot of it is a sense of support and connection and opportunities. You know, what was it like when you couldn't come to Spirit Rock if you were interested in meditation or you couldn't come on Wednesdays or there wasn't Dharma seed or you couldn't do retreats you know, or there weren't any teachings. It's challenging. I, when I was first meditating, uh, which, which was over 30 years ago, 
I met people who tried to start meditating seriously in the 1950s and 60s, and some of them had got profoundly stuck and were unable really to move because there wasn't adequate support. So we can really appreciate the level of support that we have. You know, it, it was very poignant sometimes to meet people who really had been trying to do this a lot on their own. And as, as we know, there are just a lot of ways we can get a little bit stuck or lost without, without good guidance. So I'm going to talk about three areas. The first is sort of an umbrella area, which are the different kinds of supports uh, that we might have for our practice. And let's see, the second is the importance of the body. It's a theme I've, I'm returning to a lot. The importance of awareness of the body for daily life practice. And the third is the importance of working with challenges and even moments of suffering. The way that those can be uh, really uh, help us to wake up. You know, if, we, if we take them in the right way. Suffering can also lead us to shut down. But suffering approached in a, in a certain way can actually be a wake-up call. It's actually very interesting. I mean, uh, um, when we taught the two-month retreat in 2010, in March, we worked with a theme, which I have not taught here, called the theme of transcendental dependent arising. Uh, the, some of you know the model of dependent arising, which is a teaching of the cyclical process of how suffering and habit get stuck and in place. Some of you may, may know that model, it's, and I should probably teach, teach it um, sometime, sometime soon. But it's a, it's a model which was said to be the fruit of the Buddha's awakening. And it was a model where he pointed to, the, essentially, it's how we have in our experience essentially ignorance and habit energy, which leads us, when we have certain experiences, to uh, grasp after what's pleasant and push away compulsively the unpleasant, and how that combination of what we bring to experience, namely a certain kind of ignorance and certain habit energy, coupled, you know, that conditioning, coupled with certain experiences arising, lead us to reinforce the habits of grabbing hold compulsively of the pleasant and pushing away compulsively the unpleasant. Essentially, uh, it's, it's an analysis of how that cycle continues, how we get basically locked in bad habits. And they're teaching the transcendental dependent arising is how we break out of that cycle. And actually the starting point for the second teaching is that we have a different relationship to suffering. That's the starting point, that we actually start to work with where we have difficulty and suffering as opposed to just continue somewhat mindlessly to repeat the same patterns which lead to suffering. So those are the three themes I want to explore here. So the first, the first one is uh, a teaching, it's really... Uh, a grouping of a lot of different practices that we do, a lot of different ways to support daily life. And uh, I was thinking of having uh, just a reading, maybe for each of these three, I like to have a reading from, uh, from tradition in some way. And then I was thinking of having at the end a poem which would illustrate the principle. Okay, so here's the reading. This is, some, this is maybe well known. This is from the text on the foundations of mindfulness. And this is really about the, the uh, importance of finding ways to have that uh, sense of mindfulness continually. A practitioner is one who acts in full awareness when going forward and returning, who acts in full awareness when looking ahead and looking away, who acts in full awareness when flexing and extending one's limbs, who acts in full awareness when wearing one's robes, carrying the outer robe and bowl, who acts in full awareness with eating, when eating, drinking, consuming food, and tasting, who acts in full awareness when defecating and urinating, who acts in full awareness when walking, standing, sitting, falling asleep, waking up, talking, and keeping silent. That covers everything. <laughs> you know, and so, uh, 
what, what supports us initially? What are, you know, what are the various supports, a lot of which were named? Um, so daily practice is crucial for, for most of us. And a lot of these that are familiar, I'm going to just name someone in passing and not go into much depth on them because these are well known and we talk about them a lot. So having a regular daily practice for most of us <coughs> is necessary. To, in, in various ways to support, to support our awareness. And it's really important that we just keep doing it, uh, whatever the results. It's, it's fine sometimes to just sit and have one's mind go on automatic pilot for half an hour. It's not a reason to stop doing it. We may want to find ways to, to um, refine that practice or get some guidance, but that, that daily practice is really, really crucial. Being part of a community and being regularly part of the community helps also tremendously, as we've noted, to keep coming back, to hear the experience of others, to know that our minds and our bodies and our hearts are pretty much the same. When we are not in community, we sometimes get isolated and we think that we are uniquely problematic as a spiritual being. Has anyone had that experience? <laughs> you know, and then. And then when we come to a group, we find that we are collectively all problematic in, this, in very similar ways. If I could say it that, that way, I could, I could also say it that we actually also, uh, we can see that we have both very similar challenges and very similar uh, beauties and wonderful qualities. You know, that we, and we can get inspired by others, you know, as we know. Um, reading books, study, Listening to talks, very, very helpful. Following the ethical precepts, tremendous safeguards, sometimes underestimated in our communities. Really, for some people, that can be a whole practice in itself, really taking seriously the ethical precepts where it's essentially about not harming, being kind, generous, being careful with one's life. And looking at the precepts, people who you know, in, in monasteries, one would recite the full ethical precepts, I think every two weeks, sometimes, sometimes every month. In some communities, it's done once a week, you know, and we do, we do it here uh, the second Wednesday, as, as, as many of you know, we, we, we work with that. Retreats are really, really crucial because retreats give one, as it were, training periods in which one can really substantially develop further in mindfulness or loving-kindness practice. When I was first practicing, I was very inspired initially. And I was a student, so I had, I had uh, some time on my hands, uh, although you know, I, I could meditate and um, do my studies later, uh, which I, th- I think mostly worked. But I was, I was practicing about two hours a day when I first was practicing. I really got interested. And then I did my first retreat, I think about, oh, I think after about a year. Right? It was actually my second retreat, but it was my first retreat in this, in this tradition. I think I had done a Zen retreat as well. But I did my first retreat, and subjectively, it was a two-week retreat, and subjectively it felt like I had quickened my practice. Uh, I had, had, in two weeks, uh, accelerated my practice by a year or two. That's what it subjectively felt like, like I had deepened in a way that might have taken another year or two to get there. And, and, and when one sustains the practice, one doesn't simply fall back at the end of the retreat. There's some, maybe some kind of spiral. And so retreats can be really crucial. Personally, they've been really important. And we want to find, we also want to find ways to do retreats that work for people who don't always have the time to go off or even the money. So we're experimenting, I know, later in July, Heather Sundberg and I are going to offer a non-residential retreat here, you know, uh, and so we want to experiment with forums. Some places do uh, non-residential retreats where you do, might do a day, a day long, and then four days in a row you'd meet in the evening, something like that. There are forums that people have developed which can be very, very helpful. We call it sometimes a householder retreat, can be very, very effective in terms of forums. There, there are also some other supports that are not always so well known. One of them is a practice that I've done probably for the most of the last 30 years, which is a Sabbath. One day a week where we 
do more practice than otherwise. Per- personally, I do it most of, of the whole day. Not everyone can do that. Uh, so I have students who do it three or four hours once a week, a little bit like the tradition of going to church or synagogue, you know, uh, maybe or a mosque once a week, that one would simply say, one day a week I have boundaries and I'm practicing. You can do sitting or walking. You know, what I would sometimes do, I would sometimes do sitting and walking at home and have lunch, and then I'd go up to, I was living in Berkeley, I would go up to Tilden Park and do walking meditation, like hiking, and then find a place and sit for a while, do some walking, do some reading. You know, it can be a beautiful pattern. And when, you know, the, the tradition of the Sabbath uh, is, a, is an old one, both East and West, and it really is a tradition that uh, when one does it, it becomes the pivot of one's week. And there is also a kind of a, a, a stopping of the usual momentum, which can really have a, a helpful effect. And so we may need to find, I do mine often on Wednesdays. So Sabbath doesn't have to be on the weekend. You know, personally, I do mine on Wednesdays. Typically after teaching here, I stay at Spirit Rock the rest of the day. And doing that gives me a, um, a way of doing a Sabbath which doesn't cut into my busy social schedule on weekends. <laughs> That's half a joke. <laughs> so, so wonderful practice. Um, another practice is coming back to one's deeper intentions. Beautiful practice. Uh, I do a practice where four times a day, typically, I have some phrases I work with and I remember my deeper intentions. I try to do it before breakfast, in the morning, in the afternoon, in the evening. And it can be a powerful practice. You know, some of it just is what helps us to come back to, to being present. You know, and I, I heard just a day or two ago, someone I was working with said she had heard there's a person who I've met named Jeffrey Hopkins who teaches at the University of Virginia, who's a scholar of Tibetan Buddhism. And he works with intentions six times a day. And he says that that coming back to core intentions for him can be deeper than meditation or have a more profound effect than meditation. You know, and so one can, you know, you can have, I developed my own phrase, you know, which I repeat, you know, which I think I've, I've uh, mentioned sometimes. I, they keep changing, but I'll, you want to hear mine? Yes. Okay, okay here, here they are. Let's see if I remember them, even though I do it four times a day. It's always <laughs> challenges, like when one does a lot of meta practice, you repeat the phrases, sometimes in the middle of a retreat, doing meta, doing phrases, you know, like 15 or 18 hours a day, at certain comes moments where, what are they? <laughs> so let's see. So they are, I intend to awaken for the benefit of others. And then I do some gratitude practice. Then I'm grateful and I see what I'm grateful for in the moment. And then I say, may I find peace and serenity in the, phenom- in, in, in the phenomena of daily life. May my demons and dragons become allies and helpers. <laughs> That's a big one. <laughs> may my demons and dragons become allies and helpers. Um, may, may I integrate the, the shadow and light in my body and being. May I penetrate ever more deeply into emptiness. May I open ever more to radiance. May I deepen in compassion. May I be a conduit for the Dharma to manifest on this earth. May joy always be with me. May compassion always be with me. So, that's, um, so you can see I say that. And, and some, when I say it, something settles in me. You know, something, if I was, my mind was moving a lot actively, when I say that, something just settles. I can feel that. You know? and, so, and you can find your own version. It doesn't have to be so long. It can be two sentences or three sentences. Mine started shorter and it's grown. <laughs> You know, so something like that, repeated, helps, helps come back, you know. So here, here are some poems to kind of bring out that quality of having the support for 
awareness in daily life. So this is a famous one from Blake. To see a world in a grain of sand and, a he- and heaven in a wildflower, to hold infinity in the palm of your hand and eternity in an hour. And then this is from uh, Isa, from uh, the uh, Japanese haiku tradition. How lovely, through the torn paper screen, the Milky Way. So a second, a second uh, really important general area for deepening in daily life, which is particularly crucial in our culture, is the awareness of the body. It's mindfulness of the body and bringing that mindfulness of the body into the flow of daily life. It's particularly crucial because of the very mental quality of the culture. And this is not easy practice. That the conditioning to have very, very active minds makes grounding in the body for many of us hard. And it takes some time and energy. But it's really a crucial part for me. It's one of the fundamentals that I have found that cultivating awareness of the body permits the body awareness to be there more as a default awareness in the flow of the day. So it's a shift from what for many of us is our default consciousness as we go about the the flow of the day. It might be a kind of thinking. For how many people do you think it's kind of like the internal monologue, you know, better do this, check this, oh, what about this? Hey, that was really nasty what that driver just did. I don't remember. You know, how many, you know, we have that kind of internal monologue very strong. And for many of us, it's, I won't, actually, I won't take hands here. (laughs) Um, We have that, uh, it's very, very strong. And it can just, it can make the cultivation of mindfulness, compassion, and wisdom harder because we're kind of on automatic pilot. You know, and we may, you know, and the conditioning, I think, is to be like that a lot. You know, I mentioned, I've mentioned a few times one of my moments of seeing more clearly this when I was uh, a student and I was living, I was living in Germany for a year and I had to, remember, I've told this story a few times, I, I, would, I would walk about 45 minutes, I was living on a, a biodynamic farm, it was quite an, that's another story, but it was a very interesting storm run by people who were followers of Rudolf Steiner, who had these very innovative farming methods, which was quite interesting. And I had to walk to my German lessons into the town about 45 minutes. And one day I noticed I'm just thinking all the time. All I'm doing is thinking. I'm thinking all the time. And, and I said, I'm thinking all the time. I'm just like consciousness on a pole. <laughs> and it was kind of a shocking moment because I said, I, and this was, you know, I had actually been a competitive athlete for 10 years, really refined, you know, paid certain kind of attention to the body, but not really aware of the body. And that was a kind of a shocking moment. I said, I'm just thinking all the time. And it sort of started a process of wanting to, what some people say is to come back to our senses, which is challenging in this culture. So it's a very, it's a big thing. You know, I've also, I think, told the story of, uh, of when I was once uh, complaining with John Travis, who was, for a period of time, was a really important teacher for me. I was complaining to him about how other people, they had monasteries and they had teachers and all the support. And he said, let your body be your monastery. In other words, let your body be the support for awareness. That's always there. And, and something in me really... Um, was affected deeply at that moment, I said. I don't know what, I don't, I don't think I said anything, I just, but, I, but I, it was something was felt very uh, nurturing and important with that statement. So here's, um, here's, this is again from 2,600 years ago about the importance of the body. Practitioners, whoever develops and pursues mindfulness immersed in the body encompasses whatever skillful qualities are on the side of clear knowing. 
Just as whoever pervades the great ocean with his awareness encompasses whatever rivulets flow down into the ocean, in the same way, whoever develops and pursues mindfulness immersed in the body encompasses whatever skillful qualities are on the side of clear knowing. So, very, very central. We know that the first foundation of mindfulness, classically, again, 2,600 years ago, is mindfulness of the body. That was the starting point. We are aware of the breath. So, a uh, very important kind of practice. And we can do it in a variety of ways. I think it really takes a training. It really takes focusing. For me, retreats where I really focused on awareness of the body played a big role. You know, where I just was, you know, for, for periods of time, I would, instead of being aware of the breath, I would just be aware of the whole body as an object. And it took time to develop. And others, you know, we can also do it in other ways. Uh, one technique is when you're, uh, you know, for some people actually, they come back to the breath a lot, which is in a way doing that, right? Some people work, may work with the breath, you're at a meeting, and you're attentive to the breath. That, in a way, is staying with the body. Or you can, staying with the whole body is a little more challenging. What some people do also is they're just at a meeting or waiting or sitting with someone, and they're just aware of the hands on the knees, or just aware of the feet on the floor, or just aware of the, the feet in general. And what this does, this awareness, even of the body in that small way, it breaks the monopoly of the automatic mind. It breaks the monopoly of the automatic mind just for a moment, and that's very significant. And it really makes a huge, can have a huge uh, difference in our practice. And so there are all sorts of other ways to do that. Uh, doing yoga, people were mentioning doing uh, body practices, can play, play a big role. Doing walking meditation. And, you know, I did, when I was first learning meditation, I was living in Boston as a student, and I didn't have a car, really. I was using public transportation. And, certain, and I was complaining about not having enough time for meditation. I'm, I don't know if I'm getting the impression I complain a lot, but <laughs> I, think, I think I've worked with that some. So uh, metta helps a lot. <laughs> so, uh, and I, suddenly, I had the idea, I was, I was doing a lot of walking because I was doing public transportation. I said, I will take every moment of walking and just do walking meditation. I don't think I really have any valuable thoughts, particularly when I'm walking. Let me just have every moment of walking be walking meditation. And that can work. You know, you can do that. So there are, there are these different ways of coming into the body. Do yoga or qigong or hiking and really say, now is the time just to be with my body. So in doing yoga, you know, you can have it be a mindfulness practice. Sometimes people in yoga spend a lot of time comparing themselves with other people in the yoga class. Has anyone ever done that? <laughs> and you can say, okay, cut, back to the body. There's no need to compare, and so forth. Um, so one can do, do it in that way. You can be aware when you're walking, work with the hands. There are all sorts of ways to do that, to, to um, keep, coming back, keep coming back to the body. And with all of these practices, what, my, what I'm going to be encouraging us to do if you wish, in the next week, is just take one of them. My, you know, if I was to design a curriculum for daily life, and I've sometimes thought of doing a whole focused group, like where we'd be together for a year, and we'd focus on how do we bring our practice into daily life. And we'd be there for a year, and we'd do a different focus each month. We'd do grounding in the body, or we'd do working with intentions, or we'd do working with difficult situations, or working with speech. You know, and I've had that idea. I haven't um, got around to it because, like someone else said, I want to leave time for actually my own practice and not be doing too much. Gil Fronsdale once had the, he had a really nice phrase reflecting on the tendency sometimes of meditation teachers to get too busy. He said, too much dharma is not dharma. <laughs> Uh, that stayed with me. <laughs> so, so here's a poem from uh, this is from Hafiz.
from the Sufi tradition about, this is a body poem. The body a tree, God a wind. When God moves me like this, like this, angels bump heads with each other, gathering beneath my cheeks, holding their wine barrels to catch the brilliant tear, pearl, rain. Can we do that again? <laughs> That's subtle. <laughs> so this is really more or less saying the body is like this sacred vehicle that gets blown. We could say, we could translate God, maybe the winds of awareness or the winds of our wisdom and radiance. The body a tree, God a wind. When God moves me like this, like this, angels bump heads with each other, gathering beneath my cheeks, holding their wine barrels to catch the brilliant tear, pearl, rain. So the last area I want to talk about today is this really important one of taking challenges and difficulties as practice. And so that we, we have something difficult happening and a light bulb goes on in our head and we say, time for practice. What's our conditioned reaction to difficulties usually? Complaint. Complaint, probably words that I wouldn't want to commit to Dharma seed <laughs> <laughs> and so forth. But yeah, it's basically to say, this is a problem. I wish this didn't happen. Something, some version of that. And so to take uh, difficulties, problems, even suffering as a chance to deepen, is really we're saying is a chance to learn, is a really powerful way to have daily life practice come alive. Um, because we all have difficulties and challenges and problems. So here's a traditional way to say that. This is from Tibetan tradition, from the, uh, one of the Lojong teachings. Lojongs are slogans that are given to help daily life practice. You can go probably in the bookstore. I don't know if you can buy them here, but you can buy them in different places. You can buy these sayings, which are these one-liners, which people actually sometimes use one a day to deepen their daily life practice. And here's one of them that is really suitable for this purpose. Transform all obstacles into the path of practice. Transform all obstacles into the path of practice. And again, as I mentioned earlier, when we take challenges as opportunities for practice, something shifts and our practice can really accelerate and it's not easy. And we can really, we need a certain amount of courage. We need a certain amount of perspective and wisdom, you know, that we can really see the difficulties as chances to learn. Or this has taken me outside of my capabilities, which could be interpreted as I am being stretched. It is an opportunity to learn. That's really what suffering is. Suffering means I am outside of my capabilities to handle this. So it's really, uh, as it were, tossing me around. Because we can think that of situations that five or ten years ago led us to suffering, which don't lead us to suffering now. Because we've learned something. And we have some capabilities. And so our current suffering could be seen as an opportunity for learning. Not easy. And this is also where we need community. We need support. We need a lot of ways to, to work with this. And the, the theme of working with difficulties, we could spend a whole retreat on. We could, we could do it, we could focus on that for 10 weeks. So I wanted, wanted just to um, say a few things. Uh, but I think we know that, you know, we, peop, we, well, we often say, that difficulty I've learned so much from. Sometimes adding, I'm glad it's over, <laughs> right? But I think we all have had these challenging experiences and have the perspective that I learned so much. Can we have that perspective in the present moment? Concretely, this means learning to work better with difficult thoughts and difficult emotions or sometimes difficult body states. How to be skillful with difficult states of body, heart, and mind. It's really 
part of our training. A lot, really, some of the glories of the training that we do here is being more skillful in that, er- in that area. And maybe because of time, I want to have some time for discussion, so maybe I'll focus more in depth on that next time. But just to name it, and for those of you who want to follow this up in the next week, it could be to have the intention to look at every moment that's challenging and say, can I take this as learning? And bring the tools and resources that you do have, and I'll go more into that theme of working with challenging states of body, heart, and mind uh, next week. And maybe to, but, but to suggest that the, the center of our practice with difficulties is to work with, with challenging body states, mind states, and heart states. And particularly, I think, particularly to work with difficult emotions, how do you work with fear? How do you work with anger? How do you work, we work with sadness or grief? And I'll just mention a few keys for that. One of them is to go bring it into the body. What is particularly challenging about difficult thoughts and emotions is that we get caught in negative thoughts and trapped in the emotions which follow negative thoughts. So we want to be very, very careful to notice repetitive thoughts, particularly repetitive thoughts with negative, fearful scenarios posed as my certain future. (laughs) Do you know that one? So we want to really, so if you notice yourself scaring yourself, (laughs) identify that as a thought, (laughs) rather than as the truth come to tell me how my life will be so horrible. So interpret it as a thought, identify it as a thought, come back to the breath, come back to what brings you balance. And again, I'll say more about that next time. So maybe let me close with a quotation. And before closing, I want to say my suggestion is for the next week, choose one area of daily life practice that particularly you think would help uh, you uh, move along. That's part of your learning edge. For some, it could be simply, I'm going to have everyday formal daily practice. And that's my edge. I'm going to have that every day for the next week. And then choose that. For some, it might be, I'm going to try to be in the body. For some, it might be, well, I'm going to try to work with these intentions like, like uh, we were talking about. For others, it's say, I'm going to have a special alert for difficult moments. And again, the, one of the ways that we can support uh, having this really come into our day is to bring it to mind maybe at least twice a day, maybe in the morning and maybe after lunch. Just remember this core intention for your practice or write it on your hand or something so that you can remember. Because remembering is the hardest thing about daily life practice. All of what we're talking about, actually not all that difficult. It's really difficult to remember to do it. And everything gets busy. So here, this is from the Tibetan tradition. This is from, this is from a teaching. The teaching is called mingling. And it's about the mingling of our more awake states that we might experience in meditation or in, our, uh, in retreat. And how do you mingle that with the whole rest of your life? I don't know what the Tibetan term is, but I like mingling as a <coughs> fundamental practice. So here is, this is, I'll close with this. At the beginning, there is a distinct difference between the state of meditation and what comes after meditation. But now we need to merge these two states into one so that our practice becomes more and more continuous. This mingling is considered to be of the utmost importance. When your practice becomes grounded in ideal circumstances, you must also learn to sustain it no matter uh, where you are or what happens. There is a saying in Tibet, when the sun shines and the belly is full, I look like a Dharma practitioner. (laughs) But when faced with troubles, my faults are exposed. That's worth repeating. When the sun shines and my belly is full, I look like a Dharma practitioner. But when faced with trouble, my faults are exposed. To ensure that this does not happen, we need instructions on mingling. (laughs) Namely, sometimes stay in a quiet place, sometimes surround yourself with sense pleasures, 
sometimes go to places that provoke strong emotions such as anger, desire, jealousy, and so forth. And sometimes go where you feel very insecure or threatened. In all these situations, check whether or not you are capable of sustaining the practice. This is from a book called Crystal Clear, and the author is uh, Kenshin Trangu Rinpoche, who's a contemporary, and he's commenting on a 16th century text by Dagpo Tashi Namgyal, uh, uh, where he talks about mingling. So, questions, reflections? Yeah, please. Um, so, my most difficult challenge yeah. is <clears throat> anywhere between five and seven or hmm. bedtime because I have small children. Yeah. Not so small, but small enough that I still have to manage them. Yeah. Um, and I'm tired. Yeah. And, and um, I start to um, use unwise speech. Yeah. And um, <laughs> and I'm sort of watching myself while I do it. I'm kind. Of, I'm remembering. I'm no. I'm noticing and dismayed. Yeah. But not quite enough to stop myself. Yeah. So, is there any way that you can suggest, or anyone, um, that will help sort of short circuit that tendency? so you don't screw up too badly. Yeah. No, it's a question I'm sure almost everyone here can relate to in some way. Um, uh, so, so this sounds like not a, this sounds like a significant challenge, cause, you know, because it's family and it's close to home and a lot of emotions involved and so forth. So I want to recognize that it's not, as it were, a beginning level challenge. We're probably even an intermediate level challenge. And so you have to get, you, it's helpful maybe to get a sense of what really is my edge of learning that I want to pursue. And it might not, you know, I mean, you, you, have, you want to deal with that, but it may be that you focus your energy even somewhere else for the time being, and as it were, develop some of the foundations that will help you to, in the long run, be more and more skillful with that, while, of course, doing your best. And not to, I'm not, I'm not saying that, as a reason not to really respond to the question. But that sometimes, you know, uh, I, I don't know, you know, if, if one doesn't have a daily sitting, that would be important really to have down, because that will play a role in this, that sort of thing. So that's, that's what I mean by that. Or to work with some of these other tools, because a lot of this is really strengthening the awareness. So that's, that's one thing, is that there may be other foundational abilities or capacities which need attention. And you'll have to look into that. And that actually are in the long run going to be what really does it with that challenging issue. So that's, that's one point. That being said, uh, some of it's just good. What, what you have to really do is, is study the patterns. So it's a, you have to have patience. It's a long process. Ultimately, we, st- we have to study our patterns of reactivity. And again, probably what I'll talk about more next time, but we want to, part of the process is to just to see what typically triggers me, is to have some knowledge, okay? This sort of situation triggers me more than this situation, and to really know that. And so, and maybe sometimes you can go into the situations with a strategy. You you know, like, I was thinking of like uh, when I, there's a story I've told a fair amount. Uh, when I was working with a very difficult uh, boss, basically, and I had meetings with him every two weeks, initially I would just find myself reactive, but I was in the situation for quite a while, as you are. <laughs> and I, I had some guidance, and I started just to study the patterns. And it, I, that was necessary. I started to say, oh, I get triggered by this. And then after a while I said, before the fact, I'm going to go into this, and I have a plan for what I'm going to do when I get triggered in that way. And I'm going to try to, maybe I take a time out, or maybe I feel my body, or maybe I'm aware of what's happening, or maybe I have a plan, I'm going to say this in this situation. So, um, 
those are those are some things to do. The, ultimately, the we have to study the patterns, uh, go beneath them, see what's there, um, and and it's complex because I don't I don't know the exact situation, but that that might be a starting point. It's to study the patterns, see about ways of speaking or interacting that are more skillful, and um, see it as a long-term process, and. I think what I'll do is I'll go into more detail on that next time, you know. And you can also, the day-long on speech practice might be helpful also, <laughs> because there we go explicitly. And, and, and there are talks on Dharma Seed. There are a lot of talks about how to work with, with difficult speech situations that you could listen to. So, so there, there you'd find a six-hour answer. Okay, okay it was, please, yeah. Can I just respond one thing? I have a teenage daughter and uh, what I find is if I can just stop saying something nasty one time during yeah. the day just mm-hmm. start with one yeah. stop it just once it may continue yeah. all the rest of the day but if I can just stop it once I feel like I, I mm-hmm. can do it one, one person I worked with I've told the story I think that uh, she had a teenage daughter and she was, stu- we, we, she was studying speech practice with me for about six months and she wrote the four guidelines for wise speech on her hand and had them in front of her every time she was talking to her family member. <laughs> Truthful, helpful, warm heart, good timing. Alice, I have something to say. <laughs> so please, you had some, some nothing else as well? Yeah, I did. Yeah. Uh, I want to say that two weeks ago you talked about, uh, in your own experience, when something... Uh, I don't know if it was anxiety or something yeah. bad was happening. You were immediate, one of the um, qualities of spinning out of control about it was you immediately go to catastrophic thoughts, right, right. which I think uh, you also could talk about in the last part too. But I thought about that every day in the last two weeks well, about how to. That's exactly what happens. Yeah. And. And it also is in context of my teenage daughter. But it, it, it happens so much that it's almost comical. Yeah. You know, you go from, oh my God, she got a D on a test, to she's never going to get out of my house. She's going to be 90 years old because she won't get a job. She won't right. get to college. She won't get a job. She was, you know. And you yeah, just, mul- multiple it, catastrophic yeah. thoughts. <laughs> and I think, I've got to stop this, you know, because it just makes things so much worse, and then I think, okay, what are what concrete things can I do to just break the yeah. the thought process? So that's one issue. The other issue is, but then you still need to think about, well, what are the concrete things we can do to fix this so she doesn't keep getting a D, you know? And so it's hard for me. Yeah. It's hard to, like, okay, so one thing is to stop the, yeah. the catastrophic thought, and the other is to transition into some practical yeah. You know, solutions or... Yeah, yeah. I, I see what we're kind of going immediately to degree of difficulty 10. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think all of that's very skillful and important. And, I, I'll, and I'll just go back and say, uh, working with the most difficult experiences of our lives is we have to respond skillfully. We want to respond skillfully. And some of it I have experienced is a, is a long-term process and really depends on continuing to develop these other capabilities. So not, not, that's not in contradiction to anything you said, but just to, uh, um, yeah, to find all these different ways to, um, to work with these situations. And the, noting the catastrophic thoughts is a huge one. Fearful thoughts is huge. And then finding some strategies or just some ways to cool out, you know. And um, yeah, maybe uh, last one, and then because then we have to close for time. When yeah. you started your talk, yeah, you mentioned some statistics about the number of uh, text messages yeah. that the young person is sending. Four thousand. Yeah. 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 And one of the serious concerns that I have is how much technology is impacting the life of everybody. Yeah. 
I think that uh, and he doesn't get me wrong. I worked 34 years plus at Carnegie Mellon University mm. in Pittsburgh. Yeah. And we have been key in the development of many advanced ideas in terms of yeah. uh, scientific knowledge, yeah. information technology, you name it. And I feel guilty in some way. <laughs> 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 but now when I look at it, yeah. and I said, people talk about social networks, and rather than <coughs> becoming together, getting more apart, yeah. people don't talk. Yeah. <coughs> Young people, they go and take, even they create their own language that I cannot read it because <laughs> it's very strange. <laughs> but uh, it's a very serious issue. And where you have that time to think about the spiritual aspects of your life. Yeah. And how technology, rather than being helping people, is creating problems. Yeah. And how you can reverse that trend. Yeah. Because today we, and I am from the older generation, yeah. younger people are so much involved with these gadgets and cell phones yeah. and computers and you name it. And the more the technology advances, the more isolation it creates. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, a, it's, a large, it's a very large question about the uh, impact of rapidly developing technology, particularly probably electronic technology, <coughs> on our daily lives. Um, questions particularly about younger people, about questions of isolation or um, just what, what's happening. So it's complex. I know we've had day-longs here at Spirit Rock where people have uh, looked at those issues over a whole day. And, and maybe some of those are in Dharma Seed. I think they were there was something like, uh, I know there's a conference, it's called something that happens in Silicon Valley, something like Wisdom 2.0. <laughs> uh, so there are a lot of people who are grappling with those issues because clearly there, uh, clearly there are some benefits and some uh, beautiful qualities. You know, the, obviously, you know, I, was, I talked earlier about the anniversary of what happened in Tahrir Square in Egypt. And clearly that was, that wouldn't have happened without a lot of the contemporary technology. You know, and a lot of it, it's so ironic, you know, a lot of, a lot of what made that possible originated in the Bay Area, you know, through Facebook and Twitter and so forth. So it's quite, quite interesting. So there are clearly potentials and there's a sense of interconnection and it's pretty interesting for me to exchange emails with Thai monks living in the rainforest in Thailand, right? There's something that has some beauty or positive, but there also are a lot of uh, uh, ways that current generation, like guinea pigs, you know, and it's, it's not being approached with a lot of wisdom necessarily or planning or thought. It's just kind of willy-nilly. We're just going into this and, you know, from not just the mental, but also the health effects are, are also unknown. You know, it may surface in 20 or 30 years, you know. So I would say that you know, there, there, so there are larger collective issues, cultural issues that we have to deal with. On a personal level, I think it's probably important for each of us just to make our own assessment of what's a wise use of technology and what's too much. And I mean, many of my friends set all sorts of boundaries. Personally, I have not entered into social media. You know, for me, I, I'm enough on the computer. I've decided that uh, I have enough contact and enough, enough interconnection. <laughs> it's enough, you know. And I, my intention is to spend less time on the computer. So I, I have not entered into social media. I imagine there's some things that I'm losing out on, but I don't think about them. And so I think there's a personal, probably personal choices, because a lot of, if I could, I want to finish just in a moment because we're at time. But uh, a lot of what. I didn't, another area that I didn't talk about so much in terms of really strengthening uh, daily life practice is really getting clear about one's own priorities. What's important? What's distracting me? And it's not, it's not to make a comment on one side or the other in terms of technology, but for each of us to, to really say, what is distracting me? What's important? How can I have what's important to me 
manifest in my life. It's a huge, there's a whole other area related to this. Okay, so let's close. I'll invite you to reflect. How How many of you would like to focus on one of these areas for the next week and come back and we can compare notes? Okay, so I'll invite that. So reflect on the area that you'd like to look at in the next week and how you might make that practical and real in the next week. What's going to support you to have that focus? How are you going to pull it off? So just before the dedication of merit, just to recognizing the importance of these areas and recognizing that (coughs) the questions we looked into, both personal and cultural, are large and important ones. And I hope there was that the responses were helpful, recognizing that they were very, that they were short and maybe not fully adequate, but hopefully they, they, they were helpful in certain ways. And we can continue with those explorations uh, next time. So we close by recognizing that we practice and we bring awareness, mindfulness, compassion into our daily lives, ultimately for the benefit of all, for our own benefit, for that of those we're in contact with, and then in mysterious sometimes ways beyond that circle of contact to all beings. And we wish for that benefit of all. So thanks so much. And I I look forward to comparing notes next week. Hi.